Thank you for tuning in to the podcast of Western Heights Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. We exist to exalt Christ, equip the church, and engage the community. For more info, visit whbcwaco.org. If we were to ask people, what is one thing they would like to have? They would say happiness. The majority of people, all people, want to be happy. You see, it's not just one of many things we pursue. It is the thing that we want. We want to be happy. So we pursue happiness. And we pursue happiness in in a variety of ways. We look for happiness maybe in, in a job. We look for happiness in a relationship. We look for happiness in money. Maybe we look for happiness in material possessions. But we look for happiness in a variety of ways. And when we, when we pare it all down, we say it doesn't really bring me happiness. It doesn't really bring that, that satisfaction that I'm looking for in life. And so we begin that chase once again for happiness. We begin that chase for the elusive butterfly of happiness. What is it that's going to make me happy? And what we discover when we think that we found it, when we think we've grasped it, we discover that it's vanished just as quickly as we have found it. But Jesus tells us of a happiness that is not discernible in the ordinary course of things. It's a happiness that, in fact, uh, comes out of a complete reversal of human values. He says happiness is found in something new and, and something different. It's a new and different way of living your life. And ultimately what he says, happiness is found under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's where happiness is really found. That's how you find authentic happiness. And you're going to find it in the most unusual places, the most unlikely places. Today we begin a series on the Beatitudes, and I know you're looking at this, say, one verse? How in the world is our pastor ever going to preach on one verse? So we're doing something a little bit different the next eight weeks. You know, typically I'm a guy who, expository preaching, and you know, I had a guy one time said, man, I love those suppository sermons that you give, man. I said, no, brother, it's not suppository, it's expository, okay? However, that's really not too bad if you stop and think about it. Because we definitely want to put something into your life, okay? But So I usually take that and we go through point by point and I give you an outline. Uh, this is going to be more of a topical sermon. Uh, maybe I'm trying to expand my preaching ability, I don't know. But it just seemed like as we get into the, the Beatitudes, we need to take each one point by idea by idea. So we can really grasp what it is the Lord would have us to know from this tremendous passage of Scripture. So we're looking at under the Beatitudes for the next eight weeks under the heading, In Pursuit of the Elusive Butterfly. In pursuit of the elusive butterfly. Today we look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, and we look at it under the heading, Finding Happiness in the Valley. Finding Happiness in the Valley. Look at what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the little book, Alice in Wonderland, the caterpillar asked Alice a question. And he, he said this, he says, asking Alice, he says, are you content now? And Alice answered back, she goes, well, I should like to be a little tall, a little larger. Three inches is such a wretched height to be. I'm not used to it. 
I think her little statement is indicative of all of us. We'd all like to be a little larger, wouldn't we? I'm not talking about bigger. I'm talking about larger. We'd like to be larger in influence, larger in our power, larger in our ability to, to make decisions. You know, I'm not talking about height. I'm just talking about that larger in influence. We would all like to have that. We'd like to be bigger in other people's eyes. We'd like to have be larger in our personal worth. We'd like to be larger than we are. Because after all, it's no fun being small. It's no fun being insignificant. We'd all like to have that ability to be larger. No one wants to be little. What we're, why is that? Why is it that we don't want to be little or smaller? It's because of pride. It's because of pride. Pride keeps us from wanting, a, 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 makes us want to be larger. Christian tradition says that pride was the first deadly sin. I think there's a reason it's the first deadly sin because all other sins are come from this one of pride. You know, it's not about accomplishment. We're not talking about when you accomplish something well, say, well done, you, you feel like you've done a good job. We're not talking about personal achievement. We're talking about a pride that has to do with personal character, who you are as an individual. We're talking about the kind of pride that describes the self-centeredness at the heart of sin. Listen, cheating and boozing and doing drugs and, and committing adultery do not make a person a sinner. Those are symptoms of a bigger problem. The bigger problem comes from what's in your heart that leads you to do those things to begin with. It comes from this, I want to satisfy myself, I want to meet my needs, and so you have all the arrows of your life pointing at yourself, so therefore you go out and seek happiness in all these things that you think will bring you happiness. You see, it reveals a deeper problem in your life because you're rotating one's life on the axis of self. All the arrows, instead of pointing outward toward others, it's pointing inward toward yourself. So you're putting yourselves in a position that you should never occupy, a position that does not belong to you. This is the same thing that happened in the book of Genesis. Isn't it amazing how you go through the Bible, you can always go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and find out the problem. This is where it all started. Whenever Satan came in the form of the serpent, he came and he tempted Eve. Told her, you need to eat this fruit. And Eve, you know, debated back and forth with him. And he said, he said, oh, God knows. This is a paraphrase. God knows that when you eat of this fruit, that your eyes will be open. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. To be like God. That was the first temptation, was to be like God, to be, I want to be the center of my throne. I want to be in control of my destiny. I want to be in control of my life. I want to make all the decisions for myself. That was the sin of pride, and that's what got Eve, to be like God, to seize control of her life, steer the throne away from others, and place it back on themselves. Pride says, I am in charge of my destiny. That's what happened to Eve. Eve wanted to be in charge of her life. I read the story of an 11-year-old boy who wrote a letter to God. And in, in his little letter, he said this, Dear God, my dad thinks he is you. Please straighten him out. 
The fact of the matter is, we all need to be straightened out, don't we? We all need to be straightened out. My daddy would say, well, sometimes you just think you're a little too big for your britches, don't you? We all need to be straightened out. You see, pride leads to destructive consequences. And one of the destructive consequences of pride is the failure to take responsibility for our actions. We try to fit into God's shoes, and then we find out that we don't fit in God's shoes. We cannot wear them. So what do we do? We begin to blame other people. We begin to try to pass the buck. We evade responsibility. Uh, Our failures accuse us, but our pride won't let us admit failure. So what do we do? What do they do? Adam, what did Adam do? He goes, the woman, she gave it to me. Actually, he blamed God, the woman that you gave me. So God, it's really your fault. What did Eve do? Oh, the serpent. The serpent tricked me. One thing I'll say about the serpent, you'll never hear me say anything good, but he owned up to it. He goes, yeah, I did it. And listen, that's exactly what Satan wants to do in your life. Satan's job is to bring you down. That's what he wants. He doesn't have your best interests at heart. He wants to destroy you, and he wants to destroy any chance you have of being a light and a testimony to a world that desperately, desperately needs the gospel. And he don't care who he hurts. He's not your buddy. He's not your friend. His desire is to bring devastation into your life. But that's what we do. We begin to shift blame. We begin to blame it on society. You see this happening all the time in the world in which we live. People blaming other people. We need to take personal responsibility and not blame on others. You know, I wasn't raised properly as a child. You know, I was spanked when I was little. Or, you know, I wasn't properly breastfed. Or, or I, had, uh, I wasn't had proper toilet training when I was a child. We will blame it on anyone and anything as long as we don't have to accept responsibility for what we do. When I'm irritable at my wife, which is very rare, very rare, but when I'm irritable at my wife, I usually apologize and I offer an explanation or an excuse for my behavior. If it hadn't been, now this is a hypothetical, this has not happened. If it hadn't been for that woman that came in my office and took two hours of my sermon preparation time to tell me about her marital problems, I wouldn't have been irritable with my wife. Now the woman, it's true, the woman apologized on the way out, said, said, I apologize for taking so much time, but what else was I supposed to do after what my husband did? And if I had an opportunity to go talk to the husband, the husband would say, 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 yeah, yeah, but after all, I didn't really do anything because I'm having a hard time with my boss at work. He's given me a lot more work to do. And if he hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have taken it out of my wife, who then would have took it out on the pastor at his house. And of course, if we could go back and talk to the boss of the man who treated his wife bad or treated the pastor bad, the, the boss will say, well, but you don't understand, I'm being pressured from corporate because there's a takeover going over. And so they're trying to watch their P's and Q's. And so then we go back and talk to the corporate and said, yeah, that's what it is. We got somebody trying to buy the company. And so what we do, on and on and on and on, we pass the buck, we blame someone else, and we never take responsibility for our actions. Never. We just keep trying to pass the buck on down to someone else. It goes on and on and on, one rationalization after another. It's because of pride. 
It's because of pride we are unwilling to acknowledge our failures and our shortcomings. We don't want to admit that we're wrong. We refuse to admit that we might just need some help. And so what is it? We never discover true happiness. Because it's always someone else's fault. And we never really discover where it comes from. But then Jesus comes along and look at what he says. He says, oh, how happy are those who have no pride. How happy are those who are poor in spirit. That's what he says. And it's a contradiction to what the world says. That we would expect Jesus to say, how blessed are those who are self-sufficient. We'd expect him to say, how blessed are those who take pride in who they are and what they can do. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have no pride. I read the story of a man who went to visit the doctor. He said, doctor, I have this sharp shooting pain in my head. Can you help me? The doctor said, yes, I can, but i got to ask a few questions first. He said, first, he says, do you drink alcohol? He said, no, that's terrible. How would you ask me that? I'd never touch the stuff. The doctor said, okay. He said, do you smoke tobacco? He goes, that's disgusting. I would never smoke tobacco. Who do you think I am? Never touch the stuff. The doctor said, okay. He says, the doctor said, well, I hate to ask this question, but you know the way some men are. He said, do you run around at night? And the man said, no, well, that is terrible. Why would you think something like that? I'm in bed at the latest at 10 o'clock every night. The doctor said, the pain you're describing, is it kind of a stabbing pain around, all around your head? He goes, yeah, it's a stabbing pain all around your head. The doctor says, I know what your problem is. You've got your halo on too tight. We just need to loosen it a little bit. <laughs> That's indicative of a lot of us, isn't it? Doesn't that describe all of us? We think we're just a little bit better than everybody else. You know why that is? That's arrogance. It's pride. It's pride. Jesus comes in and gives us an entirely different opinion. He says, when you have this type of pride, when you have this type of arrogance, guess what? It'll keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who have no pride, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we think that, that we can reach heaven by being on top of the mountain, we've got, we have not learned the truth of this passage. You see, in order to get into heaven, it begins in the valley of humility. That's where it all starts, that being poor in Spirit. When that word poor, it means somebody who longs for something. They crave something. Somebody who lacks the ability to cope. They're at the end of the rope and they realize that they cannot find happiness. They've tried and they failed and they cannot find happiness. And then Jesus comes along and says, that's exactly where I want you to be. That's why this first beatitude is so revolutionary. Because it goes against society. It goes against what the world says. It goes against what the majority of people say. The majority of people say, happy are those who believe in themselves, for theirs is the kingdom of success. The world looks down on the poor in spirit. The world looks down on these individuals. 
They say that you, you find it in popularity, you find it in personal achievement, you find it in power, you find it in position. But Jesus comes along and says, no, no, lasting happiness is discovered in the valley of humility. That's where lasting happiness is found. That's why the gospel of Jesus Christ offers so much comfort and hope for those in the valley. Reinhold Niebuhr said this, The gospel of Jesus is not a gospel of obvious success, but of ultimate success through obvious failure. The gospel of Jesus is not a gospel of obvious success, but of ultimate success through obvious failure. We cannot find happiness by ourselves. This is what Jesus is saying. He said, we have to be spiritually bankrupt before we can really find happiness. These are those individuals who are lost and do not know where to go or who to turn to. Jesus says these individuals can find happiness. And Jesus congratulated the poor in spirit because they know just how needy they really are. They understand, this is when I can move over and I can let God have control of my life. And their helplessness is the, is the first and the only requirement for receiving God's help. And the first necessity for a proper relationship with God is not accepting Jesus. Hear me on this. It's not accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. It's not being baptized. It's not doing good works. It starts with humility, recognizing first that you need Jesus. Because until you get to that point, your pride will never let you admit that you need help. Your pride will never let you admit that you might fall short. Your pride will never let you do that. Look, I grew up in, in a religious home. You know, I, I remember that. But I didn't come to Christ until I was a teenager. Let me tell you, at six years old, I made a profession of faith. I was baptized by immersion. Ooh, man, I was holy. Baptized, fully dunked under the water. I mean, I had it all. At six years old. I grew up in church. I was there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. As I grew up, we even went on Saturday morning. And get this, get this. We mowed and took care of the churchyard without getting paid. We didn't, we didn't pay anybody. We didn't own own because that's what you did. But I was lost. Why? Because I had religion, but I did not have a relationship to Jesus Christ. It wasn't until I became a teenager, I said, something's missing in my life. Something's, something's not right. And after counsel and after much prayer, I said, I need to make Jesus all my life. Oh, man, I don't know about this. You know why it was so hard for me to find Jesus Christ, the Lord, and save my life? Because what would people think if I walked down the aisle? What would people think? said, I thought he was a Christian. He was in the youth choir. He sang solos in the church. He sang in the quartet. I even preached a sermon. What would people think if I got up and walked down the aisle and said that I needed Jesus? Pride. Pride wouldn't let me do that because I was more worried about what people think than what Jesus thinks. That's why there's no pride at the cross. We all come to the cross on equal footing. What's the old song Augustus Toplady used to sing? So he wrote, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling.
You have nothing to offer God. Matter of fact, the scripture says all of your good deeds, all of them, everything you can think of, all your good deeds are nothing but filthy rags in the eyes of God. Nothing. That's why humility is so important and getting rid of that pride. So it's not about being baptized, attending church, or doing a good deed. It grows out of the soil of humility. Humility. And that is the, the, the first for reason. It's the reason this beatitude is the first one. Because it reaffirms the grace of God which precedes everything else. God graciously lifts those who cannot lift themselves. He saves those who cannot save themselves. He restores those who cannot restore themselves. And what does Jesus say? They are to be congratulated. These people are blessed. These people are happy. Why? Because they're recognizing their salvation does not lie in their power, but it lies in the power of God. And he said, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the ones that we receive the kingdom of heaven. Now, when it talks about the kingdom of heaven... Don't get caught up in some kingdom up there that we can't see. He's talking about the rule and reign of God in your life. The Lordship of Christ. He goes, these are the people that recognize they have nothing to offer, so they surrender themselves to the control and to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in their life. That's what the kingdom of heaven is all about. It's God's rule and God's reign for people. And really what it is, it's grace over sin. God pours out His grace over our sins. Life in the place of death. And when rebellious pride lays down its arms, God's power invades to save. And it's in His salvation, it's in His salvation that we find true happiness. Because we finally say... You mean I don't have to work for it? All I got to do is receive it? Wow, that is so cool. That is so awesome. That really makes me pretty happy. Because here it is. I've been trying to work for it all this life. And all I got to do is rest in Him and what He's already done. And when you discover that, guess what? Oh, how happy. How happy is the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. You've just got to the place where God can then work in your life. So the Sermon on the Mount. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount begins in the valley. As we look at that mountain, we're going to climb. We're going to go through the Beatitudes. We're going to go through Easter. And then we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost as if everything looks back to the Beatitude. To this first beatitude. As we look at that mountain we're going to climb, Jesus says, this is what I expect of you. And the first thing you need to realize is you can't climb the mountain in your own strength. You can't do this in your own power. You cannot live the Christian life. You cannot beat, meet the ethical standards. You cannot meet the moral standards of Christianity in your own power. The first thing you've got to do is you've got to humble yourself in the valley before you can even begin to climb that mountain. And that's kind of what Jesus is telling us. He says, you've got this mountain to climb, a mountain of, of ethics and morality, and you've got this mountain to climb. 
This is the kind of life that Jesus expects of his children. This is the kind of life Jesus expects of his followers. And you've got to realize that you cannot climb that mountain in your own strength. Don't even take the first step of trying to climb that mountain. Don't try it. You have to be able to do it by living in God's power. There is no room in Christianity for pride. There is no room at the cross for pride. So you come to this situation and you look at this mountain that you're going to have to climb, this mountain of of obligation for the Christian. And you say, I can't do that. Lord, there's no way I can live up to that standard. And Jesus said, that's exactly right. You can't. But I can help you through my power. Do it. So I know what some of you think. thinking. said, man, pastor, I feel like I am spiritually destitute like a ragamuffin living on the streets of Waco. You don't feel like there's any hope for you. Here's the good news. God has a thing for spiritually destitute ragamuffins. He said, that's exactly the kind of people I want. Because that's the people that I can change the world with. When I was in the Navy, I took a class in the Navy on art history. I know why it was, it was part of the requirement I had to have for, uh, I was trying to get my, my undergraduate. So I took a class on art history. And it was kind of unique because this, we had a traveling professor in our ship and we were in Italy at the time. And so he took us all these museums and all this thing and pointed out stuff. And, um, and, and we went to Greece and saw all that. So, and you know, we take tests and all that. So we, he took us to this one particular museum. I can't remember exactly where it was, but it was a, 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 I don't know if it was the original or a copy. I'm not that good of art history, okay? But it was a picture of Rembrandt's uh, a woman caught in adultery. And as is with Rembrandt's work, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Rembrandt's work, he used a lot of light in his, to, to extenuate what he's trying to say. In this particular picture, Jesus is the center of the picture, and the light just illuminates from Jesus. Everything illuminates around Jesus. And then all around him in the shadows are the religious leaders who had come to condemn the woman caught in adultery. You can't really make out their faces. They're kind of in the shadows. And then at kneeling at Jesus' feet is the woman caught in adultery with her head bowed down in front of him. But the light from Christ radiates to her. It just illuminates her position. And that picture is a perfect illustration of what the sermon, of what the, this first beatitude is saying. It's the light of Christ radiating on those who have humbled themselves before Him. And He lights the way. He lights the way. That's what this first beatitude is all about. And the fact of the matter is, the same can be true for you as well. Do you want to find happiness? You can find happiness in the valley of humility. Because it's there that Jesus will come to you. He will put His arms around you. He say, my child, my child, I will help you. I will help you. And I will live my life through you where my Father will receive the glory and my Father will receive the honor. Is that what you want today? We're not talking about religion. We're not talking about church membership. We're not talking about any of those things. 
We're talking about having a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Because there is no name under heaven or upon earth by which people can be saved except for the name of Jesus. And the only way you can come is you've got to admit that you can't do it in your own power. There's nothing you can do. That great theologian Bill Maher, uh, that's a joke. Y'all know who Bill Maher is, right? He said this, he says, I cannot accept anybody having to die for me. I can't accept it. Why can't he accept that? Pride. 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 Pride says, I can do it in my own power. Humility says, I can't do it in my own power. So this morning, there could be somebody here for the very first time, you need to embrace Jesus. And you need to come and accept Him as Lord and Savior of your life and allow Him to pour Himself into you so that you can live a life that pleases God. For others of you, He said, you know all this. You're still struggling with a little bit of pride. We all do. We all do. Every time we, we get just a little bit more puffed up, I think God's there to kind of remind us, hey, hey, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about me. And about me living my life through you. Maybe you just need to confess that to God. Say, God, I'm sorry that I get puffed up. I'm sorry, Father, that sometimes I become arrogant. Sometimes I become prideful. Forgive me for that. Forgive me. For others of you, maybe you need a church home. I pretty much know everybody in here. Maybe you need a church home. A place where you can come and you can be loved. And guess what? You can love. You see, it's not just about coming to church and be loved. We want you to come and love us too. It's not just about you coming in and receiving. We want you to give as well. See, it's a give and take. We want to love you and we want you to love us. Warts and all. Warts and all. We want you to love us. We want to help you and we want you to help us. Because that's what it means to be in a family. That's what it means. We love one another unconditionally. Why? Because Christ first loved us. He first loved us.